Welcome to the Sports Spectrum Podcast, where faith and sports collide. Here's your host, Jason Romano. Welcome to the Sports Spectrum Podcast, everyone. My name is Jason Romano. This is episode number 52. And we thank you for joining us here on the program today. Thank you for subscribing and downloading to the podcast on iTunes, Apple Podcasts, on Google Play, Stitcher, everywhere podcasts are found, and also on our YouTube channel. So if you check out our YouTube page, just search Sports Spectrum. We've recently just uploaded every single podcast that we've done, 52 of them now, to our YouTube channel. So check that out. Subscribe on YouTube. Listen to the podcast there if that's your preferred medium. And uh, of course, all of our content can be found at sportspectrum.com where you can become a member for just $36 for an entire year and help support our sports media ministry of Sports Spectrum and really just making the name of Jesus known and sharing the name of Jesus to all that will listen through the lens of sports. That is our goal. That is our desire. And you can help us um, reach more people through through subscribing, through supporting the ministry. So 36 bucks will get you an opportunity to partner with us, to become a member, get our magazine, and help us fund all of the great content that's being made in the Sports Spectrum ministry, including Football Sunday, which we'll tell you more about in the coming weeks, as well as sportspectrum.com. Today's guest on episode number 51 is Amy Lawrence. Now, Amy hosts the After Hours with Amy Lawrence national radio show on CBS Sports Radio. And Amy is one of the only females that you'll hear hosting a full-time radio show on a network level. And Amy's been uh, you know, on radio, especially nationally, for a long time. She was a host at ESPN for many years. That's where I got to know Amy during my time at ESPN. And she is really awesome at what she does. She's really just a good talk show host, but she's also a really great person who loves the Lord. Amy's heart for serving others, for loving others, for encouraging others is awesome. And her energy is just, is just, it's, it's addicting. You want to be as energetic as her when you talk to her. So I think you guys will really enjoy her story, her journey through the realm of local radio, what it's like to host a, a national radio show, especially overnights. Uh, and that is not an easy shift to, to host. Um, but Amy has not only done well, but she's thrived in that spot. And also talking to Amy from the perspective of social media and some of the nasty remarks and nasty comments that come her way every single day on social media, just because she's a female in a male-dominated industry. And lastly, we talk about her heart for missions and her desire to go serve overseas. Uh, Recently, she came back from Cuba and sharing the gospel and and loving on others over there in Cuba. So Amy's got a lot going on. She's an awesome person, awesome gal, and I'm just excited for you to hear her story. So without further ado, let's get right to episode number 52 on the Sports Spectrum Podcast from CBS Sports Radio. Here is Amy Lawrence. Amy, welcome to the Sports Spectrum Podcast. Oh, thank you so much, Jason. I've been looking forward to this for a long time, so this is going to be fun. Very excited to talk to you, Amy. And finally, to get you on the show, I'm grateful for that. And I want to talk about your current roles. You were with ESPN for a long time. Now you're with CBS Sports Radio doing great things. You're hosting the syndicated overnight show, After Hours, with Amy Lawrence. Love that. Give us a snapshot of what a day in the life of Amy Lawrence looks like, because I know that overnight shift is a beast. It's not easy. And you have to be sort of wired a certain way for that. So give us an idea, a snapshot of what your 
your day in a life of work looks like for Amy Lawrence? <laughs> I guess then that I am wired the right way because it fits me perfectly. Honestly, I've been doing overnights now for the better part of a decade in some shape or form. And as you say, it is difficult physically because our human bodies are not necessarily made to sleep during the daytime, but there are ways around it. And I, I look at the benefits versus the, the negatives, the downsides of working overnight, and there are many benefits to it. So thank you for asking. I guess I'll start with the day, meaning when I wake up, which is typically mid-afternoon. <laughs> People <laughs> ask me all the time, Jason, when do you sleep? Do you ever sleep? That has got to be the number one question I get from people on social media or people who call into the show, when do you sleep? Um, but obviously I don't sleep when there are sports going on. So <laughs> I wake up usually around 4 o'clock in the afternoon, and the first thing I do is take care of my zoo. I've got a bunch of pets, so I've got to take care of them. And then I start to wind into a work day like most people do when they wake up. Only the, the first half of my work day is done from home, uh, spending time on social media, following the stories of sports that broke when – uh, I was sleeping, and then getting into the night in sports, whether it's the World Series, whether it's a it's a night when the NFL is playing, uh, whether it's the NBA or the NHL, and trying to track the biggest stories and figuring out you know where my hooks are and what I can talk about for my show. And I typically go into our studios in Lower Manhattan. I don't know, anywhere between 11.30 and 12.30, now into the a.m., and mm -hmm. the show is uh, on the air from 2 to 6 Eastern, which is only 11 o'clock on the West Coast. It's fantastic timing because we've got more than 300 affiliates around the country, and we clear a, a ton of space, a ton of ears, and that part's great. Um, and then I'm usually home to walk the dog, always walking the dog, before <laughs> I go to bed and before and as soon as I wake up. And I'm in bed around 8 o'clock. So it's not quite as bad as people think uh, because I do plan time to sleep. That's the most important thing, stay on the routine. But sports cooperate because the great amount of sports that, uh, that we cover, that we watch, all the big stuff is prime time. Absolutely. And you kind of get to be that voice after all the sports are done, including on the West Coast, which is cool. I've worked the overnight shift and the early morning shift, obviously working at ESPN with Mike and Mike. And I know those hours. I know those the time frame. But I'm just curious from your perspective, you've been doing this, like you said, for over a decade now. Describe the listener base that you have, not only when you were at ESPN, but now at CBS, the listener base, the overnight audience what kind of listening audience is that it's got to be a different type of audience people who work overnight people who are late night uh, just describe that audience yeah you know the, the great thing about it is that it's a huge variety i love it and people listen longer so you and i working in the radio and tv business we're taught that people don't generally stay tuned in or watch if it's TV for a long period of time. You might get them for five minutes or ten minutes. You're trying to keep them as long as you can. Well, what I found out about the overnight audience is that people stay tuned in longer if they're working or they're driving overnight. So a huge portion of the audience is people who are either working second shift on the West Coast, uh, getting done with work, heading home, or people who are East Coast and Central Time Zones and are working that third shift or driving. People make fun of me a lot. They attend it as an insult and they say, oh, your audience is truckers. You know, who cares? That's all you, that's all the, you know, that's all that's listening. Mm. But have, have you ever driven overnight and seen how many truckers are on the highways? It's amazing the number of people that are out there driving when a lot of uh, the rest of the world is sleeping. So that's part of the audience. 
But that's not it. Uh, when I hit about, I would say, the, the final 90 minutes, maybe even a little bit earlier for, for particular jobs, we're talking about East Coast commuters, and we're talking about people who are getting up the next morning and went to bed before any of the, the West Coast sporting events finished up. So think about the big-time sporting events and, and teams that are oh, yeah. you know, operating on the West Coast lately, the Warriors, the Dodgers. Uh, I mean, there's so many amazing stories coming out of L.A. So we get then that last 90 minutes is all people who are waking up and getting ready for their work day, and they haven't heard any of it. And so it's essentially an audience that has completely turned over, uh, and we get to start – fresh and, and, you know, have new storylines with them and, and kind of help them start their day. So it's amazing the variety of the audience, and that's the part that I really like. We're talking to Amy Lawrence here on the Sports Spectrum Podcast. Now, Amy, in a way, you're living your professional dream, and you've been living it for a long time in this business, doing national radio, sports talk radio. But I want to talk about how it all got started for you. Let's go back in, in time to when you were a little girl. <laughs> And where that sort of sports love broadcasting bug sort of kicked in for you when you were younger? It's funny that you say that when I was little because I never had any intention of talking about sports for a living or even talking for a living when I was younger. I just loved to play sports. So I, I played five different sports. I ran cross country. I loved it. And uh, it, it was essentially – if, if I got in trouble, I knew my mom would take the sports away because that was how I would always stay in line is because <laughs> it was that important to me. So I loved playing them and participating. But I, when I was a kid, I didn't really watch a whole lot until I was about 13 years old. And I remember watching with my mom and stepdad a Patriots-Broncos game. And it was the days of John Elway. And Elway led the Broncos on this one of his amazing fourth quarter comebacks, three touchdowns down. They ended up winning the game. And I was hooked on the excitement. I couldn't have told you the first thing about a third down conversion or a spiral, not a, not a thing. But I love the excitement and the adrenaline of the NFL. So then I started to watch football, which was fun. And then a few years later, I really got uh, hooked on the Celtics. And that became my first love in sports. And the broadcasting part of it, amazingly enough, was because we didn't have cable TV where we lived out in the boonies in Concord, New Hampshire. And the only way I could follow the Celtics and my favorite athlete of all time, Larry Bird, most nights was to listen on the radio. And so I would listen to Johnny Most, and I would listen to Glenn Ordway, and I would follow Celtics play-by-play -play when I was doing my homework in my room. And I fell in love with the idea of being able to communicate something to an audience with nothing but words and emotions in a way that they didn't feel like they were missing anything. And, and I preferred radio then. I turned into a radio junkie. And so that was when I started telling all of my friends, I'm going to be the first female Johnny Most. I'm going to be the first woman to do play-by-play -play in the NBA. Uh, and, I, you know, probably the woman part came after. But I just told everyone I was going to be the female Johnny Most. <laughs> and so that was kind of where I fell in love with it. And the sports talk part of it, honestly, was not really uh, initially the plan. I just kind of fell into it because you've got to be able to do something to pay the bills. And so initially I started in news and sports reporting and anchoring. And, you know, I worked for a bunch of different stations all over the country. And it was essentially to support my sports habit until I could get into full-time sports broadcasting. And 
being a talker and having a bunch of opinions just naturally led me to the talk format. All right. So I got to ask you this because you and I have a mm-hmm. lot in common as far as the Celtics. And I, you have to be on, well, I guess I'm on air too, doing a podcast now, but I'm still a diehard Celtics fan. I don't know if you're still allowed to have allegiances as a sports <laughs> talk show host. I understand that. But Larry Bird is my sports hero as well. And people have asked me, you know, because you work at a national network for so many years like I did and like sure. you, you still do. Have you ever met Larry Bird? Have you ever interviewed him? And I said, no, I haven't. I've met my other sports heroes, Daryl Strawberry and certainly Emmett Smith and Tony Dorsett as a Cowboys fan. But I never met Larry Bird. And I, they said, well, what do you think you would do? I said, I think I would probably be disappointed because I'm, I would put him on such a high pedestal <laughs> as a fan that especially if I ever interviewed him, oh my gosh, I'd sound like a five-year-old child. So I guess I'm telling you this to ask you, have you ever interviewed Larry Bird? If, if you have, what was that experience like? Not one-on-one. It's number one on the bucket list. Yeah. And it's funny that you say that because sometimes you hear interviews with him or you did when he was with the Pacers. Now he's out of the business for the most part. And right. we'll see if he pops back in again. Um, but to be able to sit down and talk to him one-on-one, I've wondered – uh, whether or not it would actually be an interview that I'd look back on fondly, only because Larry was one of those guys, is one of those guys, if he doesn't feel like talking or opening up, then he's not going to. Uh, and and so I did ever wonder, like, nah, be careful what you wish for. Maybe it wouldn't be as good as you thought, but it doesn't matter. I would still take the challenge. No, I've only ever been in a group setting. I've only ever, when I was younger, uh, my mom, if there was a time when uh, I was allowed to have the car or, you know, we a group of friends, there were times that we went to Boston or went to open practices where the Celtics would be playing, you know, getting ready for the season. And I've been near him and around him, and I've taken pictures close up. Mm-hmm. But as a broadcaster, I've never had the chance to talk to him one-on-one. Yeah, I don't know how I would do if I met him. I, I would really have <laughs> – it would not be a good, a good, uh, a good experience. I don't think for me. I would literally just be drooling and not be able to say anything. He was legitimately <laughs> oh, my sports hero. More professional than you think. Now you've been doing this for so long. Yeah, fair, that's fair. But I don't know. I, I feel like he's the one guy that if I met, I just don't know what I would do. So I, I would legitimately be like Chris Farley on the Saturday Night Live skit with Paul McCartney. Remember that time when you did this? That was great. You know, it would just be awful. So anyways, we're talking to Amy Lawrence here on the Sports Spectrum Podcast. Amy, I want to ask you about your faith. Growing up, what was your faith in, what did that look like, that dynamic of faith in Christ for you growing up, the family dynamic? When did that start to take shape for you? Well, I got saved and uh, accepted Jesus into my heart when I was six years old, and I can still remember the moment. I can remember uh, the, the draw when there was an invitation that was given at my Christian school at the time we were living in Georgia for a short period. And uh, I just remember, I remember what the woman was saying on stage, asking us if we wanted to be a Christian, if we wanted to ask Jesus into our hearts. And uh, I can even remember what the auditorium looked like, you know, when I had that moment and that revelation, it was almost like I couldn't stay in my seat. And at the time, my little brother came with me because he followed me everywhere I went. So I was in first grade. My little brother was a kindergarten and a kindergartner, and we both ended up in the same room in front and prayed the prayer to ask Jesus to forgive us for our sins and to come into our hearts. And uh, I know at six years old, your you know your your cognitive ability is different than what it is as an adult, but it meant something to me. And from that point on, 
it was always the most important thing in my life. Um, when I became a, a teenager, then going on into my college years, my relationship with God was more one of father-daughter, and that's what I desperately needed because my biological father was not around much. And, and when he was around, it was nothing but angst and striving and drama and pain. Um, he and my mom split up when I was, I think, a year and a half old. And, and while he would float in and out, he was a deadbeat dad. He had addiction issues. And so there wasn't, there wasn't a great relationship there. Uh, a lot of marriage and divorce, a lot of other people in the house. And uh, it, it was just a rough situation. And so I didn't have that stable fatherly influence, everything that a dad is supposed to be for his daughter, you know, strength and confidence and love and and uh, affection and a confidant and someone that you can trust and you can lean on, well, God the Father became that to me because I didn't have it in an earthly form. And I'm so blessed that the Lord has put fatherly figures in my life over the course of my travels and where I've moved. And I have some amazing older men who, uh, who I look at like dads. Um, but that's where the void was, and that's what God filled with me. And, and he's, over the course of time now, become pretty much everything else. He, he's peace and he's joy and he's the anchor. And when things go crazy, whether it's this business, which generally does, or whether it's just life, picking up, moving around, I'm so far away from my family. I haven't lived near my family in 15 years, uh, being alone a lot. If you don't have God, I don't know how people do it if you don't have God, but, but that's how I get through. It's the only way I get through um, I mean, life sucks. Let's just face it. There's a lot about this earthly life that just flat out sucks. Yeah. There's pain. There's disease. The older we get, uh, we have people who, who are going through loss all the time. I mean, I have six, six friends who have lost parents in the last year and others who have lost family members uh, in an unexpected way. And whether it's accidents, whether it's sickness, it, it just – there's nothing but loss a lot of times when you look around and without the hope that comes from knowing Jesus, the ability to say, hey, this is not the end. This, this life here on earth is not it. It's not all there is. I don't know how I would get through it. Wow. I have so much to think about there because I can relate in so many ways with the lack of a father. But for me, it wasn't until I was in my 20s till I even understood or heard about Jesus. So for you... In high school, in college, wherever it was, as you, you know, you talk about God as the father, but how are you strengthening your faith? Because I got to imagine at, at such a young age, the temptations of the world, and they're still there, obviously, now that we're older, but the yeah. temptations of the world that pull on you when you're in high school, I have a 13-year-old daughter myself, I, I just know that they're there. So how did you sort of navigate that world as a young sort of teenager going through high school and college in faith? Well, I was boy crazy, and my mom knew it right away. So she was strict, and I mean, didn't care about being my friend, was the disciplinarian. She was both the mom and the dad, uh, and she got married a couple times. So we did have a, you know, a, a man in the house here or there. I had a stepdad for part of my high school years, but it was a bad situation. So it was, it was just my mom. It was my mom, it was my brother, and it was me. And she just celebrated a birthday, actually, recently, and I am so 
I'm so overwhelmed every time I think about what my mom went through as a single parent. Mm. Uh, she didn't get saved until after she and my biological father had, had split up. And so that's where her journey in faith began. But she was tenacious, Jason, about making sure that we were in church, about making sure that whenever she could afford it, we were in Christian school. Listen to what my mom did. My mom was was trained in college and through her early parts of her professional career as a geologist. So she went through a lot of what I have gone through as a female in sports because she was working on dam sites with rocks. And there were no women anywhere. But then when she became a Christian and she was trying to raise two young kids, she decided that it was extremely important for the two of us to be in Christian school. And so my mother would work two jobs sometimes three, overnights on the weekends. We got older, and I remember she would be gone on Friday and Saturday nights overnight and would lock us into the house and, you know, stay put. She'd go work at a hospital emergency room so she could make extra money. She changed careers and became a math teacher, and, and she's a brilliant math teacher. She was my math teacher in high school, uh, just so that she could get a break on tuition and we could go to a Christian school. And I remember when I was younger, she would save up a bunch of money to put us in Christian school for half a year, then she'd run out of money and we'd have to go to public school for a half a year and then we'd go back to Christian school when she could afford it and then she became a teacher and so I think from my seventh grade six or seventh grade years on we were all in Christian school but my mom was was all about raising us the right way even if it meant that we didn't like her and I'll tell you the truth I, I didn't like her for a long period of time yeah. it wasn't until I got out of college that I realized that she was doing what she had to to make sure that we were raised the right way uh, and, and by that time, by the time I got to high school and college, I had a college basketball teammate who was an alcoholic, and you start to see where the, the sin and the consequences of your choices come back to bite you. Yeah. And we talk about this all the time today in sports, freedom of speech, it's freedom of speech, but freedom of speech doesn't mean freedom of consequences. And that's the same thing for our choices. And, uh, you know, just my mom's personal experiences before she got saved, she shared a lot of those, I think, scared holy fear into me about the things that can happen when you aren't making smart choices as a single woman. So honestly, I've got to give her credit, that voice of hers. And I told her on her birthday, Mom, I would be absolutely nowhere without you. And uh, she decided she was going to raise two kids to walk in faith. And uh, the Lord certainly blessed her efforts. Well, I have never mentioned my mom on this podcast, but shout out to my mom too, because you and I have a very similar background and my mom raised us too. And shout out to the moms out there. So no doubt yes. we, we would be lost without them for sure. Um, we're talking to Amy Lawrence here on the Sports Spectrum Podcast. And Amy, your journey, you talked about choices. Well, you had some choices to make after you, you're finished with your schooling and, and you're breaking into this business that is very male dominated. And you you're in the local senior in Rochester, New York, and Lebanon, New Hampshire, and Oklahoma City, and then ESPN comes calling. Describe right. the feeling you had or the moments you had when you realized that ESPN was was calling and interested in hiring you. That's a big deal. It was a big deal. The time I was working in Providence, Rhode Island, which turned out to be my last local stop in my radio career, and I remember I got an email from a program director who's not with the company anymore, but he was essentially looking for women, female voices who were local, who could drive. And the old game night where they had two hosts and it was a six-hour show and oh, yeah. they would have a couple of guys that would do it during the week and then they would have a different crew on the weekends. And he brought me in 
to co-host with, at the time, John Seibel, who's not there anymore. Uh, and then it was me and it was Freddie Coleman who were up for full-time jobs, which is fantastic. Freddie and I essentially auditioned that same weekend. It was Let's see, it was early April, earlier, it was April of 2004, and he ended up getting the full-time job, but the great thing was that I got my foot in the door, and they started asking me to, to fill in. So for the next three years, I was driving back and forth from Providence, Rhode Island, until finally, uh, 111 miles one way, by the way, until finally <laughs> yep. I was able to move over to Connecticut, and, and even though uh, for most of my time there at ESPN I was, a, I was freelance, it became my full-time job, and, and uh, thankfully I understood, uh, learned and understood the nuances of network radio and how you identify audience, how you speak to a nation of sports fans, recognizing the, the big storylines that will suck them in, uh, how you entertain, you know, how you have a conversation with thousands of people that you can't see. All of those things from my time at ESPN are beyond valuable. I mean, they made me the broadcaster that I am now. But yeah, I remember the first weekend, how nervous I was uh, being in the you know, the big studio. It's in fact the old studio that Mike and Mike used to use, because oh, yeah. uh, that's where we were for the six hours of game night and working with guys like Doug Gottlieb and John and Chuck Wilson and Freddie Coleman and <laughs> some of the producers now that are spread out all over the, the country doing big things. So yeah, those ties to ESPN radio going back and, and spending nine years there, those were, those were huge in my career. Well, it's funny. I don't even think you know this. My last job when I worked at ESPN radio 2003, it would have been December of 2003. So right before you came along, <laughs> I was producing yeah. Game Night. I was producing Chuck oh Wilson's show. I was producing, it was Chris Moore, and then Doug Gottlieb came along after Chris left. And I was Doug's first producer on network radio way back when. So it's kind of ironic how all this is connecting here. <laughs> you want to hear something hysterical? Please. Doug and I seem to be tied together wherever we go. So my... My job in Oklahoma City, we worked at competing sports radio stations. Mm -hmm. Oh, and he would never speak to me, by the way, because he, he swears he was told that he wasn't allowed to talk to the competition, <laughs> but he was the only one. So Gottlieb and I were both in Oklahoma City, where he played, you know, at OK State. And then within a couple of months of each other, we both landed on the East Coast. I went to, you know, Providence, and he was at ESPN Radio. But just a few months after he started there as a full-timer, then I was there, too. And then we both left for CBS Sports Radio at the same time. So we're kind of like following each other around this path although I, I don't plan on leaving my job anytime soon I love my job <laughs> absolutely well let's let's talk about your time just a little bit at ESPN how do you look back at that at that time frame that when you were there I know you talked about you know nothing but good memories and I agree my time there 16 years I have really nothing but but great things to say but just the dynamics of working being in Bristol and sort of the Bristol mm -hmm. U campus that is you know, really in the middle of nowhere here, there's nothing else in Bristol, Connecticut, except ESPN. Just, how do you look back at your time there? It was hard. Yeah. It was hard because I was learning it all as I went without a whole lot of training. It was thrown into the fire. Um, actually, a better analogy would be thrown into the deep end and figure out how to swim. And... Uh, <laughs> You know, there there was a, an amazing component to being even on ESPN Radio because there's instant credibility when you are. But at the same time, many of the same dynamics that I have had to operate with my entire career, um, you know, at times it operated more like a locker room than a newsroom. And being the oh, yeah. only female voice on the network, the only female talk show host on the network the entire time I was there. So when I left, 
there were no other females there. So almost a decade, and I was the only woman. Now, thankfully, there were great female producers that I got to work with every now and then, and I know now there are other female hosts there, which is fantastic. Um, but I still felt like I stuck out, like a sore thumb, and that I was – alone many times, and I know that uh, the business is changing, and that's fantastic, but a lot of what I went through at ESPN prepared me, uh, gave me the tougher skin, and as you remember, Jason, that period was the introduction of social media, so to see it through the eyes of a network that that is well-known, that has a ton of eyes and ears on it all the time, prepared me for the age that we're in now, which is all access, instant access, everything's on social media. At the time that I was in Bristol, it was just ramping up. I mean, I remember uh, friends having to coax me to get on Twitter because I didn't want to. I felt like it was just not necessary. Well, now almost all of our news breaks on Twitter. Uh, And so that also was a part that prepared me. But I think the the understanding of no matter what's going on in your life, when the microphone turns on, there is a brand, there is a product that has to be put out there on the air. And so that that education over my time, my eight and a half years at ESPN Radio, that was invaluable in turning me into not just some talk show host who is you know, funny, who has a personality, who has opinions, but who knows how to put a show together. Mm. And uh, like I said, it was trial by fire, and there were a lot of things were, you know, that, that I did wrong where I remember afterwards, oh, man, I wish I hadn't done that, or, you know, just – just uh, having the opportunity, though, to get the reps and to, and to understand a national audience, those are all lessons that, that made me the host that I am today. Now, what about as a Christian? I know for me, I struggled at times with balancing my faith and my work and even bringing that into the workplace, what that looks like. What about for you at ESPN, even now at CBS? How do you go about bringing your faith in Christ, not into the workplace, but just balancing that act of being sure. both a believer and a person in sports media? At ESPN, it was a little easier, or, you know, easier is the wrong word. You you weren't quite as alone as what I feel like I am now with CBS. I've been with CBS since January 1st of 2013, and I haven't met another Christian in the workplace. Mm. Um, so, so that's a little different. But at ESPN, because the campus was so big, because there were thousands of people that, that were through Bristol every single day, you know, you generally would connect with a few Christians, which was fantastic. And uh, I remember doing that and feeling like, oh, we have so much in common, you know, being able to connect with those people and talking to those people when you needed uh, someone who was of like mind and who could understand your perspective as you faced, you know, challenges and obstacles. Um, There was a Bible study on campus at Bristol for most of the time that I was there. Now, I didn't discover it until late in my tenure there, but it was neat to me a handful of times with other people who had, again, similar perspectives and recognized about being the minority in what I call the city of ESPN. It, it was massive. It is massive. I mean, it, oh, yeah. it reaches so far outside of Bristol. At CBS, uh, you know, it, similar to, to ESPN, the philosophy is still the same. Even as a Christian, my first responsibility when I am in the building, on the air, on social media is to represent my employer and to do that, in my opinion, professionally, with class, with grace. Uh, I am always mindful of the fact that 
my employer has given me this opportunity and nothing that I do publicly uh, do I want to embarrass my employer or catch my employer off guard. Uh, and so when I go to work, the goal is to carry myself in a way that glorifies the Lord. So that means watching how I speak and the language, how I treat other people. I'm one of those people who I get very locked in on what I'm doing. It's not that I'm not nice, but I get very locked in on the business and the task at hand. And uh, sometimes I'm, you know, I could walk in maybe not as personable. Uh, and so anyway, with a woman, that's different, right? There are a lot of guys who can get away with kind of being the, the locked in, kind of bull in a china shop guy. Let's get this done. Let's go. But now as the leader of a team, I have to recognize that uh, I also need to be mindful of, of the fact that I'm working with all men and that dynamic is a little bit different. And so, you know, I, I just I try to make sure that I – that I uh, represent the Lord well, but that also means having integrity on the air, uh, ethically making sure that I speak my heart and that I'm true to my heart and myself, but knowing that there are times when my faith conflicts with the world view. Uh, and so having to understand that keeping politics out of it, keeping faith out of it doesn't mean I'm not being a Christian. What it means is that I'm doing the best of my ability for my employer. Although the politics rule really is not about my faith. That one is one that I learned at ESPN when I made a mistake. Well, I didn't make a mistake at the time, but it, yeah, it, turned, it turned into a big mistake. I happened to mention on the air, this was not a political thing. It just it came out because I was talking. Right. I said, I really like President George W. Bush. And I remember my my producer, who I couldn't see because we had a you know a half a wall between us, stood up out of his chair and looked at me and shook his head like, no, don't say that. And I, and I wasn't even referring to his politics. I was just referring to him as a Texan and as a generally nice guy. And our phones and our text line just blew up. Uh. And my producer said to me, you're better off leaving politics out of it. He said you instantly divide your audience in half. And so the politics rule is more just because he's right. I mean, right away, you divide your audience in half when you start talking politics. So, you know, I just it's, it's about being mindful of grace and peace and joy and wisdom and all of those things that God has granted us. But knowing that in the workplace, you represent a brand, you represent a company, and to put them in an awkward position because you're, you know, choosing your platform and, you know, you're spouting off about something that really, that's the wrong time, that's the wrong moment, uh, that's the wrong platform, well, you know, that can do more damage than good. Yeah, absolutely. Now, just being at ESPN, being at CBS, being on a national show, you're obviously you're going to have your critics. You're going to have people who are going to uh -huh. say things. Welcome to social media, right? But even more being a female in a male-dominated uh, industry for the most part, I've seen some of the things that have been said on Twitter recently. You posted something, something to the effect of in the past 30 minutes, I've been called expletive, expletive, been told to be quiet. I think that was after maybe the Cam Newton story. Uh, that was out recently in early October. You know, you were told, I'm reading some of the stuff that was said on Twitter, go make sandwiches multiple times, all in the name of football. Like I was really upset by this much, much less I'm sure you were uh, and couldn't believe people would do and say such things. But, you know, in social media is now what, 10 years old, decade old, basically. Is this, how do you deal with that? Because I, I, it's something, it, do you hear this kind of thing regularly? Because I just don't, I don't get criticized too often, but I'm not hosting a show every night. How, how is that? 
I don't even know how to ask the question, but what is that like, I guess, hearing all that all the time? Uh, you know, there, there are benefits to being a female and having a gigantic heart, which I do. Mm. Uh, I'm a very emotional girl, but are, there are also times when it's a detriment. And I think in this business, I, I have thought multiple times, man, if only I was more like a guy who just let it roll off his back. Because many of my male colleagues will say that. Just let it roll off your back. Who cares? Or they'll laugh. Well, that's not me. It'll never be me. I have a, a heart that gets bruised. And the social media has been the biggest challenge of the last decade, even more so than being a female in a male-dominated industry, though hmm. that's a part of it. But to answer your question, it happens every day. It happens every day that I get called some nasty name that I wouldn't say to my mother. It happens every day that people challenge my credibility or my, uh, my ability to do my job simply because I'm a different gender. And the situation that you're referring to, I didn't even think it was going to be that big of a deal. I just I wrote this tweet about how Cam Newton should get used to it because we females were not going away. And this was in response to him saying, you know, laughing about a female asking about routes. Yeah. And and I, I didn't even say anything negative toward Cam because I happen to like Cam and I think he's great for the NFL. But I wrote a 140-word, 140-character tweet about how females were not going away because we love football and we're here to stay. And the backlash was astronomical. But you know, it's not the first time. The Ray Rice situation, the Greg Hardy situation, mm -hmm. uh, similar situations that come up in sports where as a female, I'm giving a different perspective and I'm also taking a stand. When it comes to domestic violence, I'm going to take a stand. And that, that backlash, I think, uh, is at times it's something that there's this moment where I think, Amy, just don't post it. Don't put yourself out there. I always then end up doing it because I believe strongly enough about what I'm saying and because I know social media is not real life. That's what it comes back to, Jason. Social media is not real life. It's not even social. That's the part that's so crazy. Yeah. The, more I spend on, the more time I spend on social media, the more effort I put into it, the more I realize that people will do and say anything when they are anonymous and there is no accountability, which, of course, is not the same for public figures. You cannot be a public figure and be anonymous and have no accountability, but for the majority of the United States of America, they can hide behind their eggs and say whatever they want. Yeah. Most of those people wouldn't say it to your face if they had the opportunity, and most of them are just getting that uh, keyboard courage, as a lot of, of my friends call it. And so it's been a huge challenge because I have to recognize that it's all false coming from them. It's false bravado, you know, it's false toughness, it's not real. And I am far braver and tougher in real life than those people will ever be. A lot of them will end up calling my show then thinking that they're going to give it to, you know, give it to me on the air. But they, most of them end up stuttering, right? They, they can't even get it out or they hang up the second that they say something nasty. Hmm. It, it's not real life. Uh, and so... I mean, I'll tell you the truth. The first time that I ever saw a chat room, and it was um, when I was working in Oklahoma, and chat rooms were just becoming big, yeah. and there was one dedicated to people who talked about Sooner football, Oklahoma football. And I remember getting into a thread that talked about me, and it was it was so brutal that I cried. I mean, I literally cried, and I had to force myself to stop reading it. And for a while, I went through a time where I couldn't stay away from it. I was almost obsessed with seeing what people were, were posting. But you come to the realization that you cannot fight that battle on social media. You just can't. And then you realize these are people who have two followers, 12 followers. Yeah. Even if they have 1,000 followers, their reach is limited. And the only way that you give them power is by retweeting it and responding to it. 
Now, I've got a lot of male colleagues who don't block people. I block people liberally. If you don't come at me with, uh, I don't mind if you disagree with me. In fact, I think the world is boring if we all agree. So I'm fine with disagreeing about topics, about sports news. But if you come at me with name-calling or you disrespect me or, again, use words or language that I don't want on my feed, I block you in an instant uh, because if it's your freedom of speech, it's my freedom to block. So. Social media is part of my job, and I know I have to do it. And I don't think I'll ever get used to people criticizing me, calling me names, uh, challenging my faith. I get attacked because I say on my Twitter that I'm a follower of Jesus. I say on Facebook I'm a follower of Jesus, and people will attack that uh, regardless. But I have rules for myself for social media. I never name call. I always stick to the topic at hand as opposed to going after the person. I try to use humor to deflect whenever possible. And when I come home every morning, if it's been a particularly brutal night on Facebook or Twitter, people have come after me. I have to take a deep breath, and I have to remember what God says I am. I'm a daughter of the king, period. Mm-hmm. That's where it ends. These people don't know me. They don't know anything about me. And, again, if they were standing in front of me, they wouldn't ever say what they would say to you when they can hide by miles or they're hidden by miles and by a keyboard. Uh, so it really is just about remembering who your family is, your family loves you, you have friends that know you, that love you anyway, and, and you've got a God and a Bible that says, here's what you are, here's who you are, and that's ultimately what I come back to every time. Recently, and you mentioned social media, there's so much negativity and there can be out there in vitriol, but there's a lot of positive things and good things that social media can do too, bringing awareness to a lot of different things happening, good and bad, but at least bringing awareness to it. We saw the Me Too hashtag for women bringing to light the experience with sexual harassment recently. And I I was reading on your social media page and your blog, amylawrencepxp.com, in 2016, you wrote about this experience being harassed in the workplace. I don't necessarily want to want you to have to relive all that, but I was I was just shocked at the amount of people, men and women, honestly, who were sharing their stories, mostly women, obviously, on social media, just wanted to get your reaction to what you thought when you saw this kind of coming out, this Me Too hashtag and the amount of women, many Christian women, by the way, many Christian women, Christian leading leaders in the, you know, women who are leaders in the Christian world sharing their story. What was your reaction when you saw that? I wish I could say I was surprised, but I'm not. Whenever I have the opportunity to talk to women in this business or just women in general uh, who ascend to high levels of any type of industry uh, or profession, this is what happens. And this is not a blanket statement about all men, but many men are intimidated by women who you know, who rise to the level that they do. And and we know that there's been a double standard for men and women in business for a long time. Uh, And in sports radio, not even as much sports TV anymore, but in sports radio, it's still, it's still unbelievable how few women there are uh, who are doing what I do. And so I think when I saw all the Me Too hashtags, I'm hesitant to to jump into that. I, I get nervous about just, doing what everyone else is doing uh, because sometimes your message gets lost. But I wasn't surprised because I recognize the path that I've been on for the last 20 years, even going back to when I was in college and when I had determined that this is what I wanted to do with my life. And I shared my story in that blog post. And, you know, I wish I knew now 
what, or what I'm sorry, I wish I knew then what I know now about being strong, about, about being different, about standing out in a crowd because it's not a curse. It is a blessing. And, and that's what I wanted to share in that blog post. And that's what I tell women who approach me. That's what I tell uh, women that I encounter when I mentor or when I speak at different events is that it's a blessing to be different. When you are the same, well, you just get lost in the crowd. But when you're different, it doesn't mean it's easy. It's always hard to go against the grain and to stand out. Uh, it's, it's much easier to blend in. But if you do stand out, it's it's a blessing. And so I, I, I wish I – I wish I had made different decisions when I was younger. I wish that I had stood up for myself when there was harassment. But at the time, and you'll hear this from women all over, at the time your choice is if I stand up, if I speak out, if I make waves, I lose my job. I'm just getting started in this business. I can't afford to have a reputation. And that even goes to my time at ESPN, which which is in the last decade uh, before they made some sweeping changes. And I think major corporations now are much more sensitive to claims of harassment. I still don't know, though, Jason, to be perfectly honest, if it happened to me now, and, you know, I'm much higher up on the food chain now, so I don't, most men wouldn't try it now at my company yeah. because they know that I have the boss's ear and that I wouldn't put up with it. But even now, I'm not sure if I would ever file a lawsuit. I'm not sure if I would ever do something that public because I love my career. And, and I feel like I can handle it better now as a human being and as a woman. Um, but I would never suggest to women that they stay quiet. I would never suggest to women that they just take it. I know that that was a choice that I made when I was younger. And for better or for worse, I, I knew that it would affect my career in a negative way if I spoke up. And that's the part that's so frustrating, I think, as a woman. And to see all of these different women posting Me Too, we all have that in common. You, you feel like you're caught between a rock and a hard place. If you speak up, you're in danger of losing everything that you have worked for, everything. Yeah. But if you don't speak up, you're, you know, you get that constant bombardment, uh, you know, being treated like you're, you know, you're a second-class citizen or you're not valued for your brain. You're only valued for your body and for your face. Uh, and the more people speak up, the more it will change. I mean, we live in an imperfect world. There's always going to be prejudice. There's always going to be racism. There's always going to be discrimination until Jesus comes back. It's never going to be uh, completely done away with. It's never going to disappear. Um, and, and so it's hard. I, I don't even know what I would tell, you know, someone who's in a similar situation as me, only that you have to do – uh, you have to make sure you're not in danger. That's the number one thing. I always did that. My my mom was really careful schooling me about how do you protect yourself. There have been a couple of moments where I, I felt like I was physically in danger and I could feel my heart racing and that need to, to run. Um, but for the most part, it's about, you know, how much can you handle? How, mu how much can you... How much can you take before you feel like uh, what's happening is, is making it a, a situation that is toxic for you? You know, always do what is best for you before you worry about what the harassers, you know, think or, or how they feel. Forget them. They're not important. What's important is that, you know, you as a young woman are safe and that you're in an environment where you can grow and you feel protected. Absolutely. We're talking to Amy Lawrence here on the Sports Spectrum Podcast. Let's finish it up, Amy, diving back into your faith a little bit. A couple more questions left here. I love your blogs and, I, and how open you are about Thank your you. faith. I do. And I, I think it's great that you share um, your experiences and your passion for missions. Now, I've seen you've taken some mission trips and serving over the years, especially most recently. Mm -hmm. I think it was in Cuba. Why yes. such a heart for, for missions and maybe a little bit about that experience in Cuba? 
Yeah, you know, I think I stumbled in, into it the first time and didn't realize what an impact it would have on me. My first two trips were to the Andes Mountains in Ecuador, two miles above sea level in little villages where uh, the, the little shacks are built into the side of these massive mountains. Hmm. Uh, and you're, you're, you know, in the elements all the time. And uh, so I stumbled into it, but it wrecked me in such a way that I realized, oh, how blessed we are as Americans, how blessed we are to have what we have and to have access to the opportunities and the freedom that we do. And the other thing that happened was, you know, you, you think, I'm going to go on a missions trip. I'm going to help people. God can, God's going to use me. He's going to send me. I'm going to change the world. You have these visions of grandeur. Right. And then when I came back from Ecuador, what really happened was that God – uh, I realized how big God was. God opened up my eyes to help me recognize that he doesn't need me. He is God of the universe, but he has given us an opportunity as Christians to be part of, of what he's doing here on earth and to extend his kingdom and to share good news about Jesus with other people. And so it was very humbling to recognize how big and how great our God is, how small I am, but yet how loving he is to allow us to be a part of what he's doing. So I did those first two trips to Ecuador. They're soccer with little kids, essentially. We took soccer balls into these little villages, and we asked the kids to come play. And after they played, then we would share a Bible verse with them, and we would talk to them a little bit. And, and uh, then I went to Africa, which had to be the hardest two weeks of my life. We spent some time camping in the bush. You want to talk about poor uh, the electricity ran out. The water ran out by noon. There were some places where they didn't even have electricity in the bush. Uh, and we did a kids' day for 400 children that came from miles around to come play games with us and, again, to sit and hear some stories from the Bible. And then these last two trips to Cuba, I took a few years off as I was changing jobs. And honestly, Jason, I never thought I would go to Cuba. It wasn't even a place I wanted to go, right. uh, knowing the communist government. Um, but I went last year for the first time, 2016, with a group from my church, and we essentially work with a church that's in the poor suburbs of Havana. And once again, it was eye-opening uh, because it's so, it's so, so, so different. 90 miles off of our Florida coastline, here is this country where people are not free. It was my first time being in a country where people are not free. They're not free to speak out. They're not free to make money uh, the way that they want to. They're not free to advance themselves. They're essentially stuck. And the, the whole country is stuck. But to go there and to not only meet this, this small congregation, maybe 50 people, half of it probably teens and kids, uh, and to recognize their joy still, even in their circumstances, to sing with them. Oh, my goodness, Cubans can sing and dance. It's phenomenal. <laughs> A lot of the Hispanic culture, it's, it's phenomenal to worship with them and to spend time developing relationships. And, I mean, we even did some, some manual labor. We worked on a baptismal that they've been building for a couple of years. But it takes a couple of years because they have to wait until the concrete and the materials are donated. But to be part of that and then to be able to keep in touch with them on social media. So there, there you're right. There's one great thing about social media. But, again, I was struck by how blessed we are, uh, how, how Americans – take for granted what we have. And I would recommend to anyone, whether it's a missions trip or just traveling to a third world country or to a country that is, has a different government maybe than we do, because it opens your eyes and you never go back to, you never go back to the point at which you cannot see how blessed we are and you cannot see how, uh, how wonderful it is to be an American. Not a perfect country, 
absolutely not. I'm not saying that, but it is right. a country in which uh, we have the ability you know, to, to prosper, to, to make most of our careers, where we have the ability as women to be able to do whatever we want to do, right? That's not the case in many countries around the world. Women truly are second-class citizens in many other places. Um, but it, it's, it's, it changes your life. It changes your worldview if you spend some time living and working with people who are joyful despite unbelievable challenges and poverty. Yeah, as Christians, it reminds me of the Great Commission. It doesn't say go to your next town over or even go to your neighbor's house, which you need to do and preach the yeah. gospel. It says go to the world and preach the gospel to many nations. And that means where sometimes it may take you to literally the other side of the country to do that. That's got to be such a cool feeling to be able to go to another country, not just to see cultures and to to witness sort of this joy that exists in this uh, sort of different type of environment that's anything like what the United States is, but to be able to literally be a hands, be a feet of Jesus and walk mm -hmm. into these, these villages and share the gospel. Yes, it is. It's, it's unbelievable to be able to see the joyful transformation that takes place on a child's face when he understands that there is a God who loves him personally. Uh, it's not just some God that's up there in the sky that doesn't care. And so to be able to offer hope and to be able to offer uh, life, I mean, that's what, that's what this is. It's life. It's eternal life. To be able to offer that to other people is fantastic. But I would also tell you, Jason, that in the in the parts of the world where I've encountered other Christians. You know, we went to some African churches in Maputo and Mozambique, which is the eighth poorest country in the world. Wow. Uh, I mean, we're talking about dirt poor, and yet we would go into these churches, some of them in tents, uh, and we would worship with these men and women who just are so overcome by joy. And you learn from them, too. How many of us as American Christians would not be nearly as faithful about attending church or thanking God if we didn't have everything that we have and if our lives weren't so comfortable? Yeah. And here are these people who have nothing, and yet they still dance and sing and worship the Lord, and so you learn from them, too. And I think the other thing that really hit me when I was in Cuba these last two summers is that God of America is God of Cuba, and he's the same God everywhere. And, and it's, um, it's awesome to connect with people. You know, and I know Spanish enough to be able to communicate, but it's awesome to be able to connect with people across cultures, across boundaries, across time zones, across oceans, when the only thing you have in common is Jesus, it's still enough. And you feel like you're home when you're in this little bitty church that is maybe uh, 50 yards, uh, 50 square yards tops, probably not even that much. I, actually, that's, I meant to say 50 feet. You're talking about this really small little church that's just a room off the side of a pastor's home that he built himself. And uh, yet it's the same God and and you feel like you're home, even though you, you know, you, you're a stranger in another land. So cool. All right, we're going to finish it up with this. And we're talking to Amy Lawrence here on the Sports Spectrum Podcast. Amy, all of our guests on this podcast, well, the majority of them have been asked this question. So I'm going to ask it to you as well. It's how we finish up okay. our podcast. What in, in, in your time right now, where you are right now in your career, in your faith, just in your life, what has the Lord been teaching you right now during this time? That is a loaded question. I love how you <laughs> say the, the toughest one for last. Way to go, Jason. What has the Lord been teaching me? Uh, constantly over the last five or six years, 
Um, what I always come back to is that we live by faith, not by sight. We live by faith, not by sight. There's a lot of things that we're going to see, that we're going to feel, that we're going to experience. You know, plans don't go the way that we want. Uh, we can't we can't recognize where God is moving and how he is moving. And so many times it seems counterproductive and counteractive to, to what we've prayed for, to what we've asked, to what we've believed for. Uh, but faith is, is not about what we can see. It's not that easy. And if it was easy, everyone would be doing it. It's about... It's about hanging on for dear life to a God who has promised you that everything is going to work out for your good, that the people that he loves, he takes care of. The people that he loves uh, will, will never be destitute. The people that he loves are always going to be provided for him. He's everything. Uh, whether, you know, whether we're talking about material possessions or not, obviously not most of the time. Um, but God is, God is a God who, who cannot lie. And when he promises what he's promised us, you know, sometimes here on earth, sometimes we're talking about heavenly promises, but we've got to hang on to those even when we can't see that, that we're getting any closer to realizing those promises and those dreams. And, what, you know, it's, it's personal in my own life, prayers that I've had for 15 years that I keep asking and asking and asking, and I feel like I'm not getting any closer. Sure. Uh, and also it's, it's as practical as having to live paycheck to paycheck and thinking, Lord, here I am, I've been working 20 years, and, and sometimes I can barely pay my bills. But recognizing that God has always got me, he's always got me, and he's never going to let go. And ultimately, it's the reason why I get out of bed. It's the reason I can keep going, even through heartbreak and through disappointment. It's the reason why I can't give up. And so God has been teaching me that, about being able to recognize he is at work, even when I can't see it, when I can't feel it, when I feel like absolutely nothing is happening. That doesn't mean he's not working, because he promised he was, and so he is. She is Amy Lawrence, CBS Sports Radio host, and we do appreciate you, Amy, being here on the podcast. You can follow her at A Law Radio, A Law Radio on Twitter. Send her some nice thoughts. Be nice to her, but let her know you heard her on the podcast. Give her a follow, and her blog is Amy Lawrence PXP. That's for play by play. AmyLawrencePXP.com. Check her out. Check out her blogs and all the good stuff she's writing there. Amy, thank you so much. This has been a treat to talk, and I'm so glad we were able to to finally do this, and, and we'll definitely have you back on for sure. I really appreciated this and enjoyed our conversation. Well, Jason, I am so proud of you as a friend and as a fellow Christian for being light and salt. There's not enough conversation about faith in this world that we live in, especially in the sports industry. So thank you for doing this. It's not easy to do, and yet you are succeeding at it, and God is blessing you, my friend. Amen. I appreciate you. Thanks, Amy. Thank you. And we do thank Amy Lawrence for joining us here on the Sports Spectrum Podcast. Really enjoyed talking to Amy. Uh, loved her heart for missions. Loved her heart for Jesus. Loved that her her mission is to just make the name of Jesus known through her job. And it's really interesting to listen to her try and describe how she does that by hosting a sports talk show on a national level at CBS every single evening. Uh, but she does it. And she really adopts the Colossians 3 model of, and all that we do, do it all for the Lord as though we're working for the Lord and not for man. So thank you to Amy Lawrence. Again, you can find her at A Law Radio, A Law Radio on Twitter and at amylawrencepxp.com. That's where her blog is. And she writes a lot about her personal life there. amylawrencepxp.com. We thank you so much for joining us here on the Sports Spectrum Podcast. As always, you can reach us on Twitter 
at sports underscore spectrum. You can tweet at me at Jason Romano. You can also go to our Instagram page, our Facebook page, and now our YouTube page. Tons of content everywhere in the sports spectrum space. So check it out. Follow us. Get in touch with us. Let us know how we're doing. Give us some feedback. Go to iTunes. Great place to do that. Leave a review and let us know what you think of the podcast. Let us know if you have any guest ideas or if you just want to reach out and tell us uh, what you think of the show, what you think of our content. We'd love to hear from you. You can also email me, jason at sportspectrum.com. Thanks for joining us, and we'll talk to you next time. This is the Sports Spectrum Podcast.